Hey everyone, welcome back to Here to Projects. Super pumped you're joining us today. We have Dr. Brian Cutter. He got his PhD from the University of Texas down in Austin, um, but now he's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Today we're going to be talking about a new argument uh, for the existence of God, looking at psychophysical harmony. So Brian, thank you. How are you doing? Doing very well. It's good to be here. I'm excited to have you. And I got to wonder, before we get into all the psychophysical harmony stuff, like how, how is it toughening it out in these Indiana winters versus like down in Texas? Oh, it's it's pretty brutal. I don't I don't know what's worse, the the Indiana winters or the the Texas summers, but uh, we're 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 making it through. So, three <laughs> um, months of it. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine what it'd be like up there. Um, so today we're going to talk about not just like the weather in Indiana, but also like your argument from like psychophysical harmony. So it's a paper you wrote with Dustin Crummett, um, which is kind of like a new argument for God's existence. So to start off, Brian, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what kind of got you interested in like developing this argument? Yeah, definitely. So um, let's see. I, so I'm, you know, I, I work mainly in philosophy of mind, a little bit of metaphysics. Those are kind of related areas. But yeah, ma mainly mainly philosophy of mind is, is my area of work, which gets into issues having to do with the, the metaphysics of consciousness, the metaphysics of perception, things like that. Um, I'm, I'm also a, a, an adult Christian convert, um, converted during, during graduate school, partly for reasons not, not directly connected to psychophysical harmony, but corrected, uh, connected to kind of the metaphysics of consciousness and difficulties kind of fitting consciousness into a, a materialistic, naturalistic picture of the world. Um, so, I mean, so I've, I've long had interest in philosophy of mind and those have, have always been kind of connected in my mind to, to theological issues, kind of big picture worldview, metaphysical issues. Um, and let's see, so my, my advisor as a PhD was, or one of my, 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 my co-advisor for my dissertation was Adam Pouts. And this, this issue of psychophysical harmony, it's actually an issue that comes up in Adam Pouts's work, uh, he, he doesn't kind of take it in a theistic direction. To the best of my knowledge, he's not a theist himself, but um, he, he does think that it's a, a very puzzling set of phenomena. He says in a number of places that, you know, it, it, it seems to cry out for explanation and, you know, God seems like a natural thing to explain it, though he doesn't really, I, I, I get the sense that he doesn't take that hypothesis particularly seriously for whatever reasons he has. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it was probably reading his work that turned me on to the puzzle in the first place. And actually, there, there are a number of people who discuss related puzzles, and they often kind of say in passing, like, this, you know, what, what could explain this other than like an intelligent designer? What could explain this other than something like God? And then they go on to kind of dismiss the theistic hypothesis and try to say something else. Um, so, you know, D Dustin and I, we wrote the paper. We're not the first ones to think of the basic problem here. And we're also not the th first ones to, um, to think that it, it is kind of suggestive of theism or something in the ballpark of theism. Uh, but we are among the first to kind of like really, really argue that th that is the correct lesson to draw from, from the, the relevant set of data. Mm. So... When we're looking at this, Brian, there's a lot of like really cool things happening with psychophysical harmony. So maybe to start things off, do you want to talk a little bit about like what is this phenomena in the first place? Yeah, so the basic phenomenon is just that 
states of consciousness, what I'll call experiences, um, states of what philosophers call phenomenal consciousness, are linked up with physical stuff, physical states, physical behavior, in ways that seem kind of fortunate, that seem kind of lucky, that seem like they kind of cry out for explanation, or at least after a bit of reflection. Um, so that's that's very abstract, but it can I, I think it's helpful to just kind of dive in with a few examples. So for example, um, you know, the experience of pain is linked with a certain behavioral profile, like avoidance behavior, behavior that tends to re result in the elimination or reduction of pain. And that kind of causal profile associated with pain really harmoniously fits with uh, the normative role of pain, which includes the fact that, you know, pain is bad. Pain is something that we have reason to avoid. Um, now you can imagine like, well, if, if the experience of pain uh, had, had occupied a, a, a different role in kind of the causal scheme of things, like if we had felt pain in response to the, the stimuli that actually give us pleasure, and if pain were associated with the kind of behavior that pleasure is actually associated with, then there would be a kind of radical misalignment between the normative role of pain, the fact that it's bad, and its causal role. We would be kind of systematically pursuing an experience that's objectively bad. Um, we might be avoiding experiences that are good or neutral. So there would be a kind of mismatch or disharmony between the kind of normative features of experience and the associated behavioral causal role of the experience. Um, so that's 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 one example. Um, uh, you know, an, another example just doesn't involve kind of hedonic or affectively uh, valence experience. So you, you have a visual experience that presents to you certain objects with certain shapes moving around in certain ways. And visual experiences like that are linked to patterns of behavior that are appropriate to the presence of objects with those shapes moving around in those ways. So, you know, I have a visual experience presenting a spherical item right in front of me, and that's associated with a pattern of behavior that's appropriate to the presence of a sphere. I might reach out and grab it just like so. I might say that there's a sphere in front of me and, and, and so forth. Um, and now, now these facts might not seem puzzling at all on their face. They might seem kind of obvious, like, of course, that's the way in which experience would be paired up with behavior. Uh, it, it, it starts to look a bit puzzling once we pair this fact with certain views about the metaphysics of consciousness. So, so in, you know, in particular, um, if you think, as many philosophers do, that states of consciousness are distinct from anything physical, so they're distinct from patterns of behavior, they're distinct from physical processes in the brain, um, uh, and you think that experiences kind of are not causally efficacious, so you think that they're epiphenomena, they're, they result from underlying brain activity, but they don't themselves exert causal influence on your behavior or on your brain processes, um, then this kind of fortunate alignment of experience with behavioral roles looks kind of puzzling because, you know, you, you can imagine all sorts of other worlds where... Um, where the laws of nature mapped physical states onto experiences in different ways. And in those worlds, you know, our, our behavior wouldn't be coherently lined up with our experiences. We might be uh, pursuing pain and avoiding pleasure, or we might be systematically pursuing a kind of normatively neutral experience, systematically avoiding other normatively neutral experiences. Um, there, there's, it, it seems like the vast majority of kind of matching up experiences with, with physical states is going to lead to patterns of behavior um, 
that just don't appropriately reflect our, our kind of internal experience. So it seems to cry out for explanation, at least on certain views about the metaphysics of consciousness. Why is it that experiences are paired with physical states um, in, in these kind of harmonious ways? So when we're thinking about psychophysical harmony, what you're trying to get at is like what you said, like the, how on earth, like these, like these mental experiences that we have, like in our mind are going to link up with like the physical states of like, like the being, like how does our experience of like a bear running away from us, like match into like the reality of, a, is there actually a bear running away from us? Like something along these lines. And you can also push it to, towards like, kind of like feelings as well. Like you talked about, like, how do we have this experience of like love? when there's like this physical sensation um, that causes that. And that's what you're trying to get at with psychophysical harmony. Um, yeah. So, so the, the second thing you mentioned seems a, a little bit different from psychophysical harmony. So yeah. um, I, I would want to distinguish psychophysical harmony from what David Chalmers has called the hard problem of consciousness um, they're, they're a little bit related, but they're importantly distinct. So the, the, the hard problem of consciousness is just the question of why and how does physical activity in the brain give rise to subjective experience? That seems kind of like a mystery. Uh, I, I would say it's kind of the, the biggest outstanding mystery in all of science. Um, it just doesn't seem like our ordinary models of reductive explanation in science apply to consciousness. So it, it, it you know just doesn't seem like physical activity in the brain is the right sort of thing that could kind of all by itself be sufficient for subjective experience. So that's that's kind of the, the hard problem of consciousness, like why and how does physical activity in the brain give rise to subjective experience at all? Um, and the hard problem of consciousness, this is, you know, this is a line of thought that pushes a lot of philosophers, including David Chalmers himself, towards a kind of dualism, the view that Subjective experiences are distinct from anything physical, distinct from physical processing in the brain or, or anything else physical. And then once you have dualism on the table, then you're, you're probably going to think that, well, okay, experience isn't reducible to physical processes in the brain. Rather, there are fundamental laws of nature, the so-called psychophysical laws that link physical states of matter onto states of subjective experience. So there's a law of nature that says, when your brain is in such and such physical state, then you have a feeling of pain. When your brain is in such and such other physical state, you have a sensation of red. When your brain is in this other state, then you have a thought about beer or, or, or whatever it may be. Um, so we've got these fundamental laws of nature that link physical states of matter onto experiences. Now, here's where psychophysical harmony comes in. Psychophysical harmony is just the fact that those psychophysical laws link up physical states with experiences in really nice, fortunate, well-aligned ways. Um, it seems like there's, there's lots of ways in which the psychophysical laws could have mapped physical states onto experience. Most of those would not have been um, as nearly as harmonious as the actual psychophysical laws. So the puzzle of psychophysical harmony is not why is there experience at all, but given that there's experience and given that it's linked in some way to physical states of matter, why is it linked to physical states of matter in ways that are nicely harmonious in the ways that I've been describing? Okay, yeah, that's helpful, Brian, because you're, you're saying like with psychophysical harmony, like you're asking like, 
why are these physical states that are linked to like mental states? Like, why are these links so harmonious and like working really well for like what we would want? Um, and that's kind of the question that's being brought out by psychophysical harmony. So we talked about some of the different examples. Um, maybe I want to like, why would this be surprising? Because um, someone might say like, well, couldn't they be linked? Like, wouldn't it be like necessary for like survival or something like that? So of course they'd be like, like the psychophysical laws would link like physical states with like good harmonious mental states. Um, so maybe like flush that out. Why is this like a big like surprise? Yeah. So an initial first reaction is just, well, psychophysical harmony seems helpful for survival. And given that it's helpful for survival, you'd expect there to be just a nice straightforward evolutionary explanation for why psychophysical harmony exists. Um, so here's why that, the, that idea I think doesn't pan out. So Evolution can perfectly well explain why we have why we would have a brain state that's selectively sensitive to things like bodily injury and which causes avoidance behavior because it's good to be able to kind of have a brain state that detects a threat to your threat to the organism and when that brain state is triggered you want that to to activate avoidance behavior, fleeing something, something that would like eliminate whatever the, the, the relevant um, stimulus is at the moment. So there's a perfectly good evolutionary explanation for why we would have a brain state that tracks bodily injury and that leads to avoidance behavior. But there, that doesn't explain why the actual psychophysical laws of our universe would map that brain state onto an experience of pain that is an experience that's objectively bad and which gives us reason to avoid it and therefore is an experience that kind of harmonizes with that behavioral functional role of, of the underlying brain state. So, um, you know, evolutionary forces don't have any influence on the fundamental laws of nature. So evolutionary forces don't have any influence on what the psychophysical laws are. So it's kind of hard to see how an evolutionary explanation of psychophysical harmony would, would get off the ground. And I think this is especially clear once we bring in this kind of assumption of the, the causal closure of the physical, that physical, like my, my physical behavior has exclusively physical causes. So if you want to know what's the causal explanation for my behavior, according to this assumption, um, that the causal closure assumption, you can give a complete explanation of my behavior in terms of prior physical causes in my brain. Uh, the, the thought is, in order to explain any physical occurrence, you never need to reach outside the physical domain in order to give a complete causal explanation of it. So given that that's the case, the, the way in which the laws map physical states onto experience is just not going to have any influence on your behavior. And because it's not going to have any influence on your behavior, it's not the sort of thing that evolutionary forces are going to be sensitive to. So if we imagine um, some other possible world with a different set of psychophysical laws that's like hedonically inverted, so it gives us pleasure in the circumstance in, in the circumstances that would give us pain in the actual world, and it gives us pain in the circumstances that would give us pleasure in the actual world. So you imagine a, a counterfactual world just like that. Well, the, our behavior is going to be exactly the same in that world, because by hypothesis, these experiences are epiphenomenal. They result from physical processes in the brain, but they don't themselves exert top-down influence on your behavior. Um, so if our behavior is going to be the same, then 
evolution is going to proceed in the same way because again evolution is only sensitive to the way in which organisms behave and otherwise physically function and so you know they're they're going to select you know evolutionary forces in in this world are going to select for um disharmonious kind of uh psychophysical arrangements and so you know evolution by itself doesn't explain why the psychophysical laws are the way they are. If the psychophysical laws had been different, then evolution would have pressured us towards a situation of psychophysical disharmony. Um, so, you know, it, yeah, evolution, is, as far as I can see, just doesn't touch the problem. What I should explain is, you know, given that there's this kind of lawful connection between the experience of pain and avoidance behavior, evolution gives us a nice explanation of why it is that we would feel pain in response to say bodily injury, because you know evolution explains why we would exhibit avoidance behavior in response to bodily injury. And if we assume that the, the experience of pain is, is linked to avoidance behavior, that's gonna give us a kind of indirect explanation for why it is that pain is linked with avoidance behavior. But that's an explanation that presupposes normative harmony. It doesn't explain, it, it, it doesn't explain psychophysical harmony. It presupposes that there's this harmonious link between pain and avoidance behavior. And given that, we, you know, evolution would lead us to expect certain things. But the, the, the whole thing we want to explain is why is there this kind of lawful link between uh, the experience of pain, an experience that justifies, justifies avoidance behavior and actual avoidance behavior? Why is there this nice alignment between um, what our experiences give us reason to do and what we actually do when we have those experiences? Mm. Okay, that's very helpful. So thanks for that, Brian. I like how you draw it on the idea that like when we're looking at like psychophysical harmony, we're really asking like why are the psychophysical laws the way that they are? Um, so it's like evolution, like they can't, evolution is only influenced by those laws. It doesn't like create the laws or anything like that, which I think is a super helpful distinction that hopefully people can see because I think then when you look at like psychophysical harmony, um, it just makes you understand like you're asking like why are the laws the way that they are? Is that right? Yeah, so I, I think of the question of psychophysical harmony as fundamentally a question of why why the laws are the way that they are. Um, and yeah, and as you said, one, one reason why evolution can't help with that question is evolution doesn't uh, influence, you know, evolution has no effect on what, what the laws are. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, I, I, I think the way you put it was that evolution is influenced by the laws, but not vice versa. Um, but with respect to the laws that we're talking about, namely the, the laws that map physical states onto states of consciousness, those actually probably wouldn't have any effect on the course of evolution because the course of evolution would be influenced by the physical laws, that the, the laws that govern the evolution of, of, of the physical aspect of reality, um, the, the psychophysical laws, as as we're thinking of them now, probably wouldn't have any influence on on the course of the evolution of physical organisms. At least, if we retain this assumption of the causal closure of the physical, that physical states cause experiences, but not vice versa. Mm -hmm. Could someone, Brian, like, is there any way that they could just like deny the laws like exist in the first place, referring to like the psychophysical laws? Um, cause I'm trying to think of someone that here that would like, want to like, try to like say, there's just no problem at all here. Um, is there any way to do that? Good. So, 
there are a few different options here. I mean, typically this talk of psychophysical laws goes with a commitment to dualism. Um, and someone could perfectly well reject the dualist assumption. Um, so, you know, and, and maybe in a little bit, we can, we can talk about that option. Um, but the thought is, you know, if, if you're like, I'm a, if you're like a materialist, you might say, well, um, you know, the feeling of pain just is a certain physical state, or it just is a disposition to behave in certain ways or something along those lines. Um, and if, if what we have here is identity, just like, you know, we have two names for one and the same thing, then we don't need to postulate an extra law of nature to connect them. They're connected because they're just one and the same thing. We might have two different labels for them, but they're, they're one and the same thing. And so, so there, there's not gonna be like extra laws of nature connecting physical states to, uh, to experiences on this kind of materialist view. So, so if you have that view, then yeah, you're, you're, you're gonna reject all this talk of psychophysical laws. You're certainly gonna reject the idea that Psycho, there are these psychophysical laws that could have been different in all these uh, in, in, in any number of ways. So, so that would be one way of, of rejecting my initial formulation of the puzzle, um, though maybe, maybe eventually we, we can get to why Dustin and I think that that doesn't really escape the problem. I mean, there's, there's another option here. Well, I mean, I, I, I suppose you could be a dualist and think, well, experiences are distinct from physical states of matter but there aren't laws connecting them. I don't really think that's a plot that there, there aren't laws connecting physical states of the brain to experiences. I don't really think that's a plausible view because there's, there are obviously reliable, systematic, robust connections between physical states of your brain and subjective experiences such that if I, you know, we can predict that if I, uh, if I stimulate your brain in certain ways, then you'll have such and such experiences. So, so there, there do seem to be law-like regularities in the connection between physical states of your brain and, and states of consciousness. So, so I don't think from a dualist perspective, you could, you could plausibly deny that there's, um, that there, there's anything like laws connecting um, the two. One, one possibility here, this is kind of an extreme form of materialism is what's sometimes called illusionism, which says that subjective experience doesn't really exist. It's a kind of illusion. Um, now on the face of it, that might seem like an incoherent view because what is an illusion, but when you have an experience of something that's not there, but if you have an experience at all, then that's, that's experience. And so how, 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 how could experience itself be an illusion? Illusionists have things to, to say in response. They'll say that, well, it, it seems to you that there's, there's subjective experience, but the, the sense in which it seems to you is not an experiential sense. They'll cash that out in some other way. But anyway, I mean, I, I don't think this is a plausible view at all. I think we can kind of know with Cartesian certainty that there is such a thing as subjective experience. But if you denied the existence of subjective experience, then you wouldn't have a puzzle at all. You would completely dissolve the puzzle because the, the puzzle is just the, the apparent fact that experiences are linked with physical stuff in these nice harmonious ways. But if you deny the existence of subjective experience at all, then you then it you know, follows that subjective experience isn't linked up with physical states in harmonious ways. And so there's, there's just nothing to explain. Um, so so that, that, that would be a way of um, 
kind of dissolving the puzzle or sidestepping the puzzle. Um, I think that's probably the least plausible response to the puzzle, just because it denies the existence of something we can we can know with absolute certainty. I mean, I, here here I kind of follow the lead of Descartes, who thought like you know may may at least at the beginning of the the, the meditations thought maybe I can't know with certainty that I have a body. Maybe I can't know with certainty that there is a physical world at all. But at least I can know that like. I exist and I'm thinking and I have a, you know, I'm, I'm conscious. I, I, I have my subjective experiences. I, I kind of agree. Like we, we can know that with basically absolute certainty. It's more certain than, than anything else. Uh, so, so a, a response to the problem of psychophysical harmony that involves denying that thing that, you know, one of the few things we can know with absolute certainty that, that, that just seems like a non-starter to me. Mm. So like, if I'm understanding you right, it's like, someone could possibly maybe be like an illusionist physicalist. Um, maybe they can get around like psychophysical harmony. Obviously that comes around with it, all other kinds of problems that you were talking about here, Brian. Do you think other forms of physical physicalism can get around psychophysical harmony or is it, is it going to have to be a view that which kind of like denies the existence of these like mental states? Is that like the only way you can kind of get around it? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, the, so it, a little bit here is going to depend on what what we mean by getting around psychophysical harmony, um, yeah. or, or whatever the the actual phrase was. Um, so there are some views that would deny the alleged datum of psychophysical harmony, or at least uh, parts of it. So. So he, here's a view you might have, and maybe some, you know, there, there are materialists who are inclined to this view. You might accept normative error theory. That is, you might accept that there are, there are no normative truths. So, um, it, you know, sta statements of the form, pain is bad, or pleasure is good, or, or we have reason to avoid pain, or we have reason to pursue pleasure. Um, the statements like this that involve normative terms like good, bad, ought, reason, um, they're, they're all false or they're at least all untrue. Well, if you held that view, then you would, um, then, then well, that, that's going to dissolve some examples of, of psychophysical harmony that we talk about in the paper, because some of these involve a kind of harmonious alignment between the normative truths about an experience and its associated like behaviors. So like, you know, we, we tend to avoid pain and we say pain is bad, something that we have reason to avoid. And so our, our, our behaviors are exactly the thing that are, that the experience gives us reason to do. But if you're a normative error theorist, then you think, uh, well, actually we don't have reason to avoid pain. Pain isn't bad. And if pain isn't bad, then there's not this nice alignment between the normative truths about pain and the descriptive role of pain, because there just are no normative truths about pain. So if, if you held that kind of view, you would avoid some kinds of psychophysical harmony that we talk about. So there's two points to make in response to, to, to this line. So one is that it doesn't avoid all the examples of psychophysical harmony that we talk about. So in the paper, we distinguish two main kinds of, of harmony. One is this normative kind where we've got this nice alignment between the, the descriptive role of an experience and its normative role. The other is what we call semantic harmony. And that's, that's the kind of harmony that occurs when experiences are paired with physical states 
in ways that induce a semantic correspondence. Like, uh, so, so an example is, you know, maybe I, I have a visual experience of a smooth white expanse against the, the backdrop of a, a smooth black background. Um, and I report this experience by saying, I experience a smooth white expanse against a, a smooth black background. Um, okay, so my report is true. Okay, so my report is a bit of verbal behavior. My experience is this subjective thing. And my experience is linked up with my physical reports in ways that make that report true. Um, so this is, this is semantic harmony because here experience is linked up with patterns of behavior in a way that induces a semantic correspondence. The experience makes the, the, the verbal report true. So you can think like, imagine the psychophysical laws had been such that they, they gave me an experience of kind of chaotic TV static, a kind of TV static like experience um, wh when I'm disposed to report that I'm having an experience of a smooth white expanse or something like that. Well, then my report would be untrue. My report would not reflect the actual structure of my experience. So under all these kind of alternative psychophysical laws, um, I would have experiences that don't match up to the verbal reports that I'm disposed to make. And so we would have a kind of psychophysical disharmony there. Now, mm -hmm. notice this idea of a semantic correspondence that I have experiences of just the right kind that make my verbal reports true. That's not a normative notion at all. Nothing in that, nothing in that characterization involved words like good, bad, ought, reason. It didn't involve normative vocabulary at all. So even if you accept normative error theory, as long as you believe that there is such a thing as like true and false reports, and it'd be pretty crazy to deny that, um, then you have to accept that, you know, our experiences are linked up with physical states in such a way as to make many of our verbal reports true. That didn't have to be the case, at least given our dualist assumptions. So there's something here that, that kind of cries out for explanation. And that's true even if we're normative error theorists. So even if we completely ignore all the cases of normative harmony, there's still this big class of examples of semantic harmony that that response just doesn't even touch. So, so that's the first thing to say in response to the, um, to the normative error theory response. Uh, the second point to make is that the normative error theory response is just wildly implausible, um, or at least that's that's what we think. It seems to be uh, about as obvious as anything in philosophy that excruciating pain is bad, that you know some forms of pleasure are good, that some beliefs are justified by certain perceptual experiences. Um, so certain just like very basic normative claims like excruciating pain is bad, um, just seem like pretty obvious starting points to any philosophical project. Uh, if, it, you know, it, if in order to, to escape some argument, you, you, you end up having to deny that excruciating pain is, is bad, uh, I feel like you're you're in a pretty bad position. Like the, the correct approach to mm -hmm. philosophy is, you know, you start with the seemingly obvious starting points, the the things that seem just kind of blindingly obvious before doing much philosophy, and you try to hold on to those unless those push you to something even less plausible. You know, you know, mm -hmm. like yeah. even more counterintuitive. Um, and in this case, I feel like, you know, nobody is being forced to 
accept the crazy thesis of, of, of normative error theory. Like maybe, maybe you feel pressure to do that if you want to hold on to something like naturalism or, you know, something like atheism. But, you know, th those views are not so radically plausible that they, that when it comes, yeah, yeah. Like if it, if it came down to a choice of like holding on to your naturalism or holding on to the belief that excruciating pain is bad, like you shouldn't choose to hold on to your naturalism. That's, that's just, <laughs> an irrational way of, of resolving that tension. Okay. This has been super helpful. So thank you, Brian. So we talked a little bit or a good bit about like what psychophysical harmony is and like what the laws are and like what's happening here and why it's a problem. So going from psychophysical harmony, so we like there is this like relationship between like the physical stuff and the mental stuff that's very harmonious. harmonious. Um, how do we get to theism from psychophysical harmony? Good. Um, so the way we present the argument in, in the paper, it's basically a Bayesian argument. And for viewers who aren't familiar with the Bayesian framework, this is, this is basically a formal framework for reasoning in a kind of probabilistic way um, on the basis of new evidence. So maybe it'll help if I say a few just kind of basic uh, facts about the Bayesian framework. So in in Bayesian ways of thinking, when you you get some new piece of evidence, uh, the, the Bayesian framework tells you uh, how you should update your beliefs on the basis of new evidence. So here, let's imagine we're comparing two different hypotheses, theism on the one hand with kind of naturalistic atheism on the other hand. And we want to know how to adjust our attitudes towards these two hypotheses in light of this evidence of psychophysical harmony. Well, the way we would think about this in, in, in the kind of Bayesian framework is we'd ask, first of all, how likely is this datum conditional upon theism? And we'd also ask, how likely is this datum conditional upon naturalistic atheism? And then the key point of the, the Bayesian framework is we, we want to look at the difference in those two likelihoods. So um, in particular, if, if the, the data is much, much more likely on theism relative to naturalistic atheism, then the data is going to tend to confirm or raise the probability of theism relative to, to naturalistic atheism. Um, and that's, that's what we argue is the case here. So first of all, um, we argue that uh, kind of a priori um, psychophysical harmony was very much not to be expected given naturalism. The argument for that is there's this huge number of kind of conceivable sets of psychophysical laws that is conceivable ways of mapping physical states onto experiences. And the vast, vast majority of those, we argue, would be disharmonious. In other words, if our, for, for, for the vast majority of possible psychophysical laws, if our world had been governed by those psychophysical laws, we would not have had anything like the degree of psychophysical harmony that we find in our world. Now, at this point, you might say, okay, fine, but even if most sets of psychophysical laws would have been disharmonious, it doesn't follow from that that psychophysical harmony is very surprising or very improbable on naturalism, because it could be that the simplest 
psychophysical laws would be harmonious. And it's often thought that there should be some kind of a priori bias towards simpler theories or simpler sets of laws. This is one way of cashing out the idea of Occam's razor, that we should kind of all else equal prefer simpler theories or simpler sets of laws. Um, so if it were the case that the simplest sets of psychophysical laws would lead to psychophysical harmony, then I would concede that psychophysical harmony is not all that surprising given naturalism. But one thing we do in the paper is argue that that's actually not the case. So not only is it true that most sets of psychophysical laws would have been disharmonious, it also seems to be true that the simplest psychophysical laws would have been dis disharmonious or at least would have lacked the kind of psychophysical harmony that we find in, in our world under the actual psychophysical laws. So um, there are a lot of possible psychophysical laws that would have been much simpler, it seems, than those that prevail in our world. So, you know, consider a set of psychophysical laws that, um, you know, maps every physical state onto the same kind of uniform gray phenomenology, or that maps each physical state of your brain onto a slightly different TV static experience with maybe, you know, where the, the, the exact pattern of TV static somehow corresponds to the exact micro physical structure of your brain. Or imagine a set of psychophysical laws that um, just gives experience to elementary particles and does so in a way that kind of like neatly corresponds to their physical properties. So like, you know, like some, you know, some, some, some basic um, phenomenal quality corresponds to mass, some other basic phenomenal quality corresponds to charge and so on. Um, and so, uh, you know, in, in this world that has very, very simple psychophysical laws, it's only subatomic particles that get experiences. Uh, macroscopic objects like brains and physical organisms don't get subjective experiences. Um, th this is a, a much simpler set of psychophysical laws than those that prevail in our world. But, you know, they, they, they don't seem to lead to the, the striking kinds of psychophysical harmony that, that we find in our world. So anyway, the, the general point here is that it just doesn't seem to be true that the simplest psychophysical laws would be harmonious. Um, and we, we can think up lots of sets of psychophysical laws that would have been much, much simpler than those that prevail in our world that would not have been harmonious. So I, I don't think you can say that there's this kind of a priori bias on naturalism towards uh, uh, harmonious psychophysical laws. So, okay, so that's that's half of the, the argument. That's that's the part that says that um, psychophysical harmony was very, very improbable on naturalism. Then the second part is that, you know, it's it's not very, very improbable on theism. Um, so you can think of all sorts of reasons why a benevolent God uh, might be interested in creating um, a, a world that exhibits psychophysical harmony. It looks like meaningful forms of agency will require uh, psychophysical harmony, meaningful relationships will require psychophysical harmony. Basically having any kind of coherent li mental life that maps on in any coherent way onto your like patterns of behavior and your agency and your interactions with other people are going to require uh, a high degree of psychophysical harmony. These are obviously valuable things. And so there are things that, um, you know, it's not wildly surprising that God, God would want to create. And so, so for, for these reasons, we think that 
you know, the, the likelihood, uh, the, the, the degree to which we should expect psychophysical harmony conditional on theism is much higher than the degree to which we should expect psychophysical harmony on naturalism. And therefore, within the Bayesian framework, uh, the existence of psych psychophysical harmony uh, provides some, some confirmation for theism vis-a-vis -vis naturalistic atheism. Uh, one important thing to note here is that the argument absolutely does not rely on the claim that psychophysical harmony is like, like it, so, so it absolutely doesn't rely on the claim that God would definitely have wanted to create a world with psychophysical harmony, or we can know that with a high degree of probability. Um, in fact, you can think that well, we should have a lot of humility about divine psychology. Who knows what an omnipotent being would would want to do? Um, so, you know, we're, we're not going to put the, the probability of psychophysical harmony conditional on theism very high. That's still compatible with it being very, very strong evidence for theism, so long as the probability on theism is much, much higher than it is on naturalism. Um, so so here here's... Here's an analogy to, to make this point. Um, suppose um, I've got like a monkey and it's it's typing, you know, the, I, I go into a room and there's a monkey and it's typing away on a, on a typewriter. Um, and, you know, it, it types out the sentence, uh, I am a good monkey or something like that. Um, okay, I, I take it that this is very strong evidence that we have something that's not a normal monkey that's just typing randomly. Um, it's very strong evidence that this is something like a specially trained monkey or something weird is going on, right? Um, but notice to, to get that result, I don't need to say that, um, you know, this exact message was very likely conditional upon having a trained monkey. Like, you know, if, if you asked me beforehand, like, on the assumption that this is a specially trained monkey, how likely is it that it will type specifically, I am a good monkey? You know, I wouldn't put that number very high. You know, I probably wouldn't put it higher than one in a million. But even if I put it as low as one in a million or one in a billion or one in a trillion, it's still going to be like many, many, many orders of magnitude higher than getting a message like that on the assumption that it's just a, a normal monkey typing randomly. And so the, the key point here is that if you want to know the evidential impact of uh, a, a bit of data or a bit of evidence, what matters is not, you know, how likely was it on the, like, it, it, so what, what matters is not that it was likely on theism in any absolute sense. All that matters is that it was much, much more likely than on the alternative hypothesis. And I think that's that's plausibly the case here. And, 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 that, and that's a pretty modest claim. You, 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 that, that's consistent with a high degree of modesty um, about you know, judgments about what, what God would do, what kind of world we would expect of an all good God and, and, and so forth. Okay, yeah. There's a lot of really like helpful stuff that you said there, Brian. Um, one thing I thought that was really interesting was like, you talked about how like on atheism, not only is it just about like the amount of ways that things could go wrong, but also like there's a lot more simpler ways on atheism um, yeah. for there to be like how the psychophysical laws could be set up, like where everything is just like maybe like a just like a blank, like a fuzzy TV screen as you talked about, um, or like maybe like one like overlapping like uh, psychophysical, like mental state overlaps all like physical states, you know, Um I find that really interesting. I think that's helpful for people to kind of realize that when we're talking about psychophysical harmony, um, it might be stronger than like your traditional fine tuning argument. Cause maybe you could make an argument that 
we have a very simple set of natural laws um, over some overlapping theory, but it seems like with psychophysical harmony, you couldn't find some like ultimate theory that explains all the diversity of like how the laws are set up. Yeah, I I mean, I think the, well, so the first point to make is there, there definitely is an analogy between the traditional fine tuning argument and our psychophysical harmony argument. I, I think when we were initially writing the paper, we had toyed with the idea of just calling it the, the psychophysical fine tuning argument and similar ideas in the literature have been labeled as psychophysical fine tuning. So yeah, you, you can think of this as a kind of um, mental analog of the traditional fine tuning argument. Um, I mean, in one way, well, yeah, so, so there's, there definitely is an analogy in that, you know, in, in both cases, it seems like the laws or certain physical parameters could have been different in any number of ways. And it seems like intuitively most of the ways in which they could have been different would have led to, you know, either no life in the one case or lack of psychophysical harmony in the other case. Um, and so it seems very unlikely conditional upon naturalistic atheism, at least given a single universe, that our, our world would exhibit the, the re relevant fortunate feature. Um, and, you know, comparatively, it seems much more likely on theism. So, so there, there's definitely an analogy there. As far as I can see, the main advantage of our argument over the, the traditional fine-tuning argument is that it doesn't seem to be as vulnerable to multiverse-style responses. So the traditional fine-tuning argument probably... The, the most important challenge to it is the, the multiverse response, which just says, well, we can explain why we find that our world is fine-tuned for life by proposing that maybe there's a very large multiverse. So there's a large and varied collection of universes that maybe differ amongst themselves with respect to the, the values of these, these different fundamental physical parameters. And the vast, vast majority of them are not life permitting. Um, but, but of course, uh, you know, given a large enough multiverse, it's unsurprising that at least one of the universes would be life permitting, probably more than one. And, you know, given that you need to be alive in order to observe a universe at all, it's no surprise that we find ourselves in one of the life permitting ones, even if the vast majority of universes in the multiverse are, are not life permitting. So that I think is you know, it's 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 not easy to give uh, a good response to to that challenge. I mean, there's there's a lot of complications. I'm not sure at the end of the day whether the the challenge works. But it's you know, on on the face of it, I think it's a a, a powerful challenge to the traditional fine tuning argument. By contrast, I don't think that response is going to work in response to the psychophysical harmony argument. Um, and here's why. So. In order for a multiverse style response to work, you need two things to be in place. First of all, you need a, a big enough multiverse such that it's unsurprising that you know, at least some of the universes would have the relevant feature. And second of all, you need an observation selection effect. Roughly speaking, you need that um, you know, we, we couldn't have existed in universes that didn't have the, the relevant feature. So this is, you have both features in the case of life. So I, I postulate there's this big universe, there, there's, there's this big multiverse um, and with, with variation in the physical parameters. Okay, so that gives me the first thing that it's unsurprising that at least some of the universes would, would be life permitting. Um, I also have the second thing. I also have the observation 
selection effect because uh, you, you need to be alive in order to be observing universes in the first place. Okay, so so that gets us that it's unsurprising that we would find ourselves specifically in one of the, the life-permitting universes, um, even though the vast, vast majority of, of universes in the multiverse are, are not life-permitting. Okay, now I think you can get the first thing when it comes to psychophysical harmony, if you postulate the right kind of multiverse, but I don't see how you're going to get the second thing. I don't see how you're going to get the, the observation selection effect. So you can get the first thing just by saying, ah, well, I'm going to postulate an even bigger multiverse than the one postulated in response to the standard fine-tuning argument. Now I'm going to propose that um, the, the different universes differ with respect to their psychophysical laws. And maybe the vast majority of universes in the multiverse are psychophysically disharmonious, um, but given a large enough multiverse, it's unsurprising that at least some of them would be would be harmonious. Okay, so that that gets us the first part. But I don't think I I, I don't see how the observation selection effect is going to come in. So um, it could be that you need a certain degree of psychophysical harmony in order for conscious agents to count as observers at all. Like if you know, if if we had just kind of like totally chaotic TV static like experience, uh, maybe that 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 experience would just like not at all coherently reflect what's going on in our environment, uh, and so you you wouldn't you wouldn't count a subject like that as counting as an observer. That's fine, um, but there's still lots of conceivable ways things could be where there's enough psychophysical harmony to have observers, but still plenty of disharmony out there. So, you know, imagine a world that um, where our kind of perceptual experiences are just as they are in the actual world, but the the pleasure pain experiences are inverted or something just neutral plays the, the pleasure and pain roles. Okay, so that's, that's going to be a set of psychophysical laws that leads to disharmony. Um, mm -hmm. But it's still a universe with observers in it. So, you know, it's, it's not that it's so it, it's just not true that we couldn't exist uh, as observers in worlds that didn't exhibit a high degree of psychophysical harmony or, uh, you know, you, you, you can. I mean, so in fact, so yeah, I mean, and one suggestion we make in the paper is actually it seems like most of the universes that exhibit enough psychophysical harmony to have observers in them are going to be a lot less psychophysically har harmonious than, than our world. And so, um, so the, the general lesson here is that we have strong evidence against the relevant kind of multiverse, because um, if that kind of multiverse actually existed, we would expect to find ourselves in you know, a, a universe with a very low degree of psychophysical harmony, mm -hmm. because most of the observers exist in such universes. Uh, but we don't find ourselves in a universe with a very, very low degree of psychophysical harmony. Uh, so we have we have strong evidence against that kind of multiverse uh, hypothesis. So so that's that's the, a kind of key disanalogy. There there doesn't seem to be the right kind of observation selection effect in in the case of psychophysical harmony to um to, to make a multiverse style response work mm -hmm. okay so when you're looking at the multiverse brian you're going to say that like it can't really explain psychophysical harmony because like there still would be a very low level of like psychophysical harmony 
Um, so then if we look at like our existence, like then we still have this like question of like, even if there's a multiverse, like well, why are we the ones that have the psychophysical harmony? And there's like this big multiverse where it's very unlikely that we would in fact like have psychophysical harmony. Yeah, so that's the basic idea. I mean, I, I think maybe it'll be helpful to think of just an analogy of some other kind of stupendously unlikely occurrence. So go back to our monkey typing randomly. So, you know, I, I go into the room, the monkey types out a nice message, like, I am a good monkey. Um, and initially, I think, oh, this must be a specially trained monkey. This is not a normal monkey typing randomly. But then I think, oh, wait a minute, maybe I live in a multiverse. And maybe the multiverse is big enough that somewhere in the multiverse, there's a randomly typing monkey who types out a coherent message, like, I am a good monkey. Okay, now given a, big, given a big enough multiverse, of course you can make it more or less guaranteed that somewhere in the multiverse there's a randomly typing monkey who types out, I am a good monkey. But this doesn't actually explain why I myself observe a, 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 a monkey typing a message because you know the vast, vast majority of observers in the multiverse who observe randomly typing monkeys observe the monkeys just typing random gibberish, right? Um, mm -hmm. So conditional on this multiverse hypothesis, it's still just staggeringly unlikely that I myself would observe uh, a monkey typing a message, even though I can get the result that, you know, there, there definitely is a monkey that somewhere in the multiverse that, that's typing a coherent message. It doesn't predict that I myself would be, would, would observe a uh, a, a, a normal monkey typing a coherent message. And so it just doesn't predict the data. Um, by contrast, the, the hypothesis that this monkey is not a normal monkey, that it's a specially trained monkey, um, that does predict that I would be observing, uh, you know, or at least it makes it much, much more likely that I would be observing uh, the, the monkey type out a coherent sounding message. And so, um, you know, so, so the hypothesis that it's a specially trained monkey is just dramatically confirmed over the the multiverse random monkey hypothesis, and you know the the key point here is that you know with with the randomly typing monkey, there's just not an observation selection effect, and so you don't get the result that given the multiverse, it's much more likely that I would be observing uh, you know a, a, a monkey typing a coherent message, and and that that's that's relevantly analogous to the case of of psychophysical harmony. There, we don't have the observation selection effect. So even though the multiverse will deliver the result that, you know, somewhere in the vast multiverse, we have a, a, a harmonious universe, it still doesn't make it at all likely that we ourselves would be observing a, a harmonious universe. Okay. That's super helpful, Brian. So thank you. Um, so we talked about the multiverse. Why doesn't this argument need to like assume dualism? So I know you talked about this a little bit, but I'd like to go a little bit more into this. So like a lot of the times in this interview, we, like we, you've talked about like physical brain states and like mental states and people would be like, well, isn't that just like assuming dualism here where you have like a physical and a mental? So how would like, what would you think about that? Good. Um, so the key point here is just that, um, So most forms of physicalism nowadays at least accept that there's what's called an epistemic gap between the physical and the experiential. In other words, they don't think that there is any like a priori connection between 
the physical description of how you're behaving or what's going on in your brain on the one hand and the fact that you're experiencing such and such subjective sensations. So they think that there's an epistemic gap. They, you know, they agree with David Chalmers and these other people that um, there's, there, there's no kind of a priori connection between the physical truths and the truths about experience. Um, they just say that the epistemic gap doesn't show us that there's an ontological gap, doesn't show us that there's like real distinctness between these things. But the way we argue will work so long as we accept that there's an epistemic gap. And the, the basic point here is just that, you know, it's, it's a Bayesian argument that starts with epistemic probabilities, like given naturalism, what kinds of psychophysical correlations should we expect? Given theism, what kinds of psychophysical, what kinds of psychophysical correlations should we expect? Um, and, you know, when we ask that question, we're just talking about what's what's epistemically more or less probable given certain assumptions. We're not yet, you know, making any assumptions about you know what what's metaphysically possible or not. Um, and even if you know, even if these kind of alternative psychophysical correlation patterns um, maybe aren't metaphysically possible, it still seems reasonable to assign them some kind of epistemic probability because they're they're coherent epistemic possibilities. They're they're things we can't rule out with you know with a priori certainty. So they're they're kind of within the space of epistemic possibilities. They're things that we can legitimately assign epistemic probabilities to. So the basic kind of Bayesian reasoning still goes through, even if we have kind of other assumptions about what, what may or may not turn out to be metaphysically possible. Here's an analogy that, uh, th that I like for this. So, um, you know, there, there's this view, necessitarianism, um, that says that, uh, that whatever is true is metaphysically necessary. So basically it's, it's the view that there's, there's really only one metaphysically possible world. There's, there's, there's a number of kind of epistemically possible worlds. There's, there's things that are kind of true for all we know, but according to this view, whatever is actually true couldn't have failed to be otherwise. So it's, um, it's, yeah, it just says everything true is metaphysically necessary. Everything false is metaphysically impossible. Now, you know, some people take this view seriously, um, but if you take this view seriously, you still should be able to kind of avail yourself of normal Bayesian reasoning for, for everyday conclusions. So suppose I find a message-like arrangement of rocks uh, on, my, on my lawn. Uh, and, you know, uh, you, you would normally infer from that that like probably they're intentionally arranged. You would infer that because, you know, within the Bayesian framework, because the probability of a message-like arrangement is just much, much higher on the hypothesis that they were intentionally arranged than on the hypothesis that they weren't intentionally arranged. Mm -hmm. And so that, that gives us strong evidence that these rocks were intentionally arranged. And, and I mean, the, the core idea here is you should be able to help yourself to that reasoning, even if you have some sympathies towards this necessitarian view. So even if you think, uh, whichever way the rocks turn out to be arranged, they had to be arranged in exactly that way. That was the only metaphysical possibility. You should still be able to say, well, epistemically speaking, the epistemic probability of a message-like arrangement given 
that they were intentionally arranged is much higher than the epistemic probability of a message-like arrangement given that they weren't intentionally arranged. And so we still have good evidence that they were intentionally arranged, even if at the end of the day, I'm gonna say that um, you know, you know, may maybe some of these alternative arrangements were not metaphysically possible. So that's, that's the, the key point that the main way in which physicalism differs from dualism is not in any epistemic respect. They agree that there's an epistemic gap, they just kind of disagree on the metaphysical, the, the kind of metaphysical modal status of these psychophysical correlations. Mm -hmm. But the basic Bayesian reasoning for our conclusion just doesn't really presuppose much about that, that, that modal status. It's, it's just running on kind of epistemic possibilities and distributions of epistemic probabilities over different epistemic possibilities. And so, um, a kind of openness to physicalism shouldn't make a, a, a really deep difference to, to the style of reasoning that, that, that we're employing. Um, maybe here's a somewhat, well, maybe somewhat more technical, but somewhat more helpful analogy. So suppose, um, you know, so, suppose we've got uh, two different monitors and the, the first monitor is is monitoring the movements of a hundred different people. We'll call them the A's and the monitor labels them like A1, A2, A3, up to A100. The second monitor labels uh, the movements of 10 people, call them the B's and the monitor labels them B1, B2, up, up to B10. Um, and we start out like unsure whether each B is identical to some A call that the identity hypothesis, or whether they're a separate group of people. We, we don't know. We've just got these monitors that, that kind of tell us when, when a given A or a B is moving. Um, now, suppose there's like a, a rumor floating around that says that, ah, well, here's what's going on. The, the A's are adults and the B's are babies. And specifically, according to this rumor, it says like, you know, B1 is the baby of adult A79 and B2 is, is the baby of adult A13 and so on. And it kind of like lays out specifically which, which B belongs to which A. Um, and maybe we start out, we don't, we don't take this rumor particularly seriously. We, we give it a prior probability of like 1%, but you know, it's, 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 it's something that we're considering. We think it's much, much more likely that um, that the identity hypothesis is true, that each B is identical with, with some A. But beyond that, suppose we, we don't have any um, prior hunches as to which B is identical to which A. Now, suppose we then observe the, the screens and we, we find that there's a striking correlation between the, the movements of the, like each B has its motion correlated with, with the motions of some A. And sp specifically, let's suppose that um, the, the correlations match up exactly in the way that the rumor would have suspected. So the, 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 the like B1 is paired up with A79 or whatever the rumor says, like the, 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 the pairing was. Um, okay, so, so now you can say, well, both, you know, like both of the views, both the identity hypothesis and the adult baby hypothesis have an explanation for, for the data here. Because the, the adult baby hypothesis will say, uh, the reason why the, the movements are correlated is like, um, you know, the, each baby is with its parent and, you know, the, the parent is maybe pushing the, the baby around. And so that, that's why their, their movements correlate. Um, so so the, the adult baby hypothesis predicts the correlation. 
you might say, well, the, the identity hypothesis can also explain the correlation because they can say that, well, the, the, each of the Bs is, is identical with whatever A its motion is correlated with, and that's why their motions are correlated. So you might think, ah, oh, well, the, the, the two explanations are actually on a par. But actually, if you do the, the Bayesian calculations, it turns out that the identity hypothesis is just dramatically disconfirmed in this case, um, because the identity hypothesis, it, what it predicted was that some, that, that each, each B would have its motions correlated with some A, but it didn't predict specifically that the, the motions of the Bs would be correlated with these As in particular. And actually, mm -hmm. if you kind of do the combinatorics, it was very, very unlikely that, um, that, that the, the motions of the Bs would be correlated with those As in particular, whereas that was the correlation pattern specifically predicted by the adult baby hypothesis. So even though both sides can kind of explain why we have this correlation, um, the, the general identity hypothesis doesn't predict specifically that correlation, whereas the, the alternative hypothesis kind of specifically predicted the, that correlation. Okay, that, that's an elaborate example, probably more elaborate than was worth getting into. But, but the, the general lesson here is that, um, you know, you can imagine two different hypotheses for or two different attempts to explain the, the harmonious psychophysical correlations. On the one hand, it might be that something like theism is true, and God designed the psychophysical correlations to, uh, to exhibit harmony. That's one hypothesis. The other is that each experience is identical with some physical state or other. Now, the key point is that theism predicts specifically harmonious correlations, um, whereas the, the general kind of physicalist hypothesis doesn't predict specifically harmonious correlations. It just predicts that each experience will be correlated with some or other physical profile, but a priori it doesn't predict that it'll be uh, correlated in a harmonious way rather than any of the other kind of epistemically possible disharmonious ways. And so it, it just looks like this, the kind of specific correlation patterns we find that exhibit harmony are much better predicted by a kind of theistic design hypothesis than they are by a kind of generic physicalism. Generic physicalism just predicts a correlation between each experience and some or other physical state, but it doesn't specifically predict the, the harmonious correlations that we find. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that, that's very helpful, Brian. So I appreciate that. Um, one more objection that I'd like to look at, and I find this kind of interesting, is thinking about idealism. Mm -hmm. um, so in an idealist, like, worldview um everything is mental um like mind are the product of mind and like there's even like naturalistic like ideals like bernardo castro um could this provide any way um maybe like for like a naturalist or an atheist that looks at like a physical harmony is like wow this is really powerful evidence for theism i want to find some sort of way to almost like lessen the blow of the power of this argument like could idealism like be a way out or like to help like the naturalist like kind of make sense of psychophysical harmony what are your thoughts there Good. Um, so I think it's going to depend a lot on the version of idealism that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess my general thought is, you know, there, there are some versions of idealism that might qualify as naturalistic, but they're not going to solve the problem. And there's other versions of idealism that might 
solve the problem or they might explain the data, but they, they don't seem to qualify as naturalistic. Um, mm. Even if they qualify as atheistic. Uh, I mean, we, we're kind of open in the paper to other non-theistic explanations of psychophysical harmony, but we, we just don't think that any of them are going to be kind of naturalistic in their credentials. Um, so, you know, suppose we have just a kind of a, kind of a Barclayan form of idealism, the, the kind of idealism that George Barclay held, but without God. Um, so we've got a bunch of minds, like there's my mind, there's your mind, there's all the different kind of finite human minds, um, but there's no God in the picture who's kind of orchestrating our different experiences. Well, th this view, I think, is just a non-starter because, like, there's there's all sorts of just, like, weird coincidences in the, the way experiences are patterned that, like, if you don't have God to explain the coincidences, it just looks unbelievable. So, you know, for, for example, like, why, why is it that um, my experiences are suggestive of a kind of single independent world viewed from, like, different perspectives at different times um, that's kind of stable over time? Uh, you know, if, if you have God to kind of like give us a stream of experience that is kind of designed to be suggestive of a kind of stable, independent world, you can explain that. Um, if you have a stable, independent world that's causing our experiences, as on the non-idealist view, uh, then then you can explain that. But if you if you don't have God in the picture, you just have the minds and it's kind of fundamental that they just have certain experiences. It's it's kind of it, it seems like a weird fluke that we would have experiences specifically of, the, of a kind that are kind of suggestive of a, a stable, independent world. Uh, another kind of related coincidence is like the experiences that I have um, and the experiences that other people have are kind of suggestive of the same stable, independent world viewed from different perspectives. That seems like a weird coincidence that our experiences would all be kind of orchestrated with each other in these really harmonious ways. Uh, I mean, if, if, if there's a God who kind of designed us to, to be in some kind of like meaningful relationships and communion with each other, you could explain why, why the experiences in my mind would kind of cohere with the experiences in your mind and being suggestive of the same stable, independent world. But if there's no God in the picture, it's, that, that just seems like a, an unbelievable, unexplained coincidence. Uh, mm -hmm. That's... I mean, that, that, I, I don't know if you'd call that psychophysical harmony, but it's 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 at least a phenomenon related to psychophysical harmony that just seems like, you know, you, you, you need something like God in the, in the picture to explain the kind of order and coherence in our in our experiences on a kind of Barclay style idealist view. Um, I mean, so, so that's one point. I also think that, you know, just the, the kinds of psychophysical harmony that we talk about, you still have basically that in the idealist picture, though it needs to be reconstrued a little bit. Um, so, you know, one kind of psychophysical harmony is when we feel pain, we tend to physically behave in ways that our pain gives us reason to physically behave. Um, now, if you don't, if you don't have like a material world in your picture, then there's, there's not really going to be the material side of, of, of that correlation. Um, but there's at least going to be the experiences of behaving in certain ways. And so we can, we can recast the, the psychophysical harmony in terms of a harmonious correspondence between our hedonic experiences and the behaviors we experience ourselves as performing or the behaviors that others experience us as performing. 
Um, actually, I mean, I idealists will say that it's true that we kind of have bodies and we physically behave in certain ways. Uh, they'll just kind of ground those facts and facts about experience. Uh, but here we'll, we'll still have a kind of lucky seeming correlation between our hedonic experiences on the one hand and the, the patterns of behavior that are grounded in other sensory experiences that we have um, that, 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 would, that would cry out for explanation. So, so I don't think a, a, a Barclay style idealist view without, without something like God is going to be a, a viable response to it. A, because it just seems to have tons of independent problems and B, because it, you, you basically get the same, uh, the same phenomenon, just slightly recast within the idealist framework. There is a, a, a form of what you could call idealism. So, so Philip Goff, who's talked about a, a version of the psychophysical harmony in some of his published work. Um, nowadays, he, my sense is that he favors a kind of a, what he calls a pan-agentialist view. So kind of at the at the fundamental level, we've got uh, like elementary particles or small things like that. And they have their own kind of experiences. And not only do they have kind of subjective experience, that's the kind of, you know, that, that, that's built into standard panpsychism, but they also have a kind of primitive form of agency. So maybe they like feel pleasure and pain and they kind of respond to the reasons provided by their experiences. So like when, when a particle feels pain by going in this direction it responds to that reason by going in the other direction and when it when going in you know this direction causes it to feel pleasure it responds to that reason by continuing to to move in that direction and so so you get a kind of not not just kind of raw experience at the fundamental physical level but a kind of reasons responsiveness a primitive form of rationality and agency at at the fundamental level um and then he's he's got a story for how how you would build up kind of uh, experiences of macroscopic things like like you and me from from there. Now, I, I would need to see the details to to say whether this really like explains all the data that needs to be explained. Um, but but let's suppose that it does. Um, that's fine. But but I think at, at this point we've gone pretty far afield from anything that I would want to call naturalistic. I mean, I'm open to the idea that um, dualism as such is not contrary to naturalism or panpsychism as such is not contrary to naturalism. I mean, you know, as such, like these views just say that there's some extra fundamental ingredient in ex its experience and maybe it's present at the, the, the most basic physical levels or maybe it's just present at, at higher levels or whatever um, and it's connected to the rest of the world by, by basic laws. That by itself, I think, doesn't render a view non-naturalistic. But when you start putting things like agency and rationality um, at the at the at the level of like fundamental particles, um, it 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 no longer looks to be a view that's kind of within the broad spirit of naturalism. So it's it's kind of at, at, at that point, it's not really among our our main targets uh, any, anymore. Okay, that's helpful, Brian. Um, so we covered a lot of ground here. One thing I kind of was wondering through the course of the interview is like, it seems like to me, like the psychophysical argument, argument, like for the existence of God is pretty new. Like, why is this like such a new argument? If I'm right. Um, Cause obviously natural theology has been going for a long time. So what are your thoughts here? That's a really good question. Um, so one, one thing to say here is that, our argument is 
closely related to arguments that are at least a little bit older. So Richard Swinburne has a similar argument, but there, there's a lot of difference in, in emphasis and um, difference in like what, what, what the main kind of thing to be explained is. Uh, uh, Bob Adams has, has a related argument. J.P. Moreland has a somewhat related argument. Um, John Locke has, going much further back, has kind of related arguments, but none of them put the emphasis in quite the same place as us. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of spitballing here. So, you know, part of our, part of the puzzle is related to stuff that William James talked about like over a hundred years ago. Um, and it's stuff that David Chalmers has talked about and a number of like secular philosophers of mine. But I think often people have thought that it's just a puzzle if you accept a certain kind of dualism. And specifically people have thought like it's, it's, it's mainly a puzzle if you accept kind of dualism together with causal closure of the physical. And if, you know, if the puzzle relies on strong assumptions like that, then you know, maybe it's not so natural to think of it as as a strong argument for theism, just because you know you you could a, a you could just drop those strong assumptions and escape the argument that way. So one of our contributions is to argue that dropping those assumptions doesn't actually solve the problem. But that's that's a relatively subtle point, and so maybe it's not terribly surprising that others others didn't see it. Um, and you know, another reason is you know. Epiphenomenalism in particular is probably, I don't know, I, I think that theists typically don't accept it. I don't accept epiphenomenalism. Uh, and so if, if it's only a problem, if you accept epiphenomenalist dualism, then maybe it's just not going to be an attractive argument given the, the standard commitments of other theists. Um, but yeah, I don't, that's a good question. I'll, I'll continue to, to think about that. Of course, you know, one, one, explanation of why you know your fancy new argument hasn't been thought of before is other people just like maybe thought of it and realized it was a bad argument uh so you know that, that, that that's always a possibility on the table um but uh naturally i don't i don't think that's the correct explanation um <laughs> but you know it, you know it's easy to come up with something original if the idea is bad the, the mm -hmm. trick is coming up with something that's original that's also good yeah so i mean you know it's there there are as I've said, there are related ideas out there in the literature. Um, so it's not like we just like came up with the whole thing, whole cloth. Um, our, our original contribution is relatively modest. A, it's kind of actually pushing it in the direction of a theistic argument rather than mentioning and passing that like one, one could take it in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. And B, kind of making much clearer what, what assumptions the argument actually relies on. And, you know, yeah, and you know, a few other things. I mean, also, I think our, you know, a, a notable contribution of the paper is pointing out a significant advantage over the the standard fine tuning argument, specifically in connection with the the, the multiverse point that it's not it's it's not as vulnerable to multiverse style responses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll continue to think about that. That's that, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is interesting to think about. Brian, because I think like the argument kind of build, like you said, it builds off of other things and other ideas. And that's kind of um, 
like how progress is made is like you're like you're looking at like William James and uh, Richard Swinburne and all these other people and kind of building off of them to create something new. Um, so I appreciate your humility and not being like, well, I'm just a freaking genius and I just got it all figured <laughs> out. Um, but at the same time showing like, yeah, you build it. So it's super cool. So anything else, Brian, you want to say with regards to like psychophysical harmony or whatnot before we wrap up today? Um, yeah, nothing, nothing springs to mind. <laughs> well, Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciated um, your time and I learned a lot just thinking through the argument. So how can people like follow you, connect with you, things like that? Yeah. So uh, I guess maybe the best place to go is, you know, I've got a Phil Papers page. Uh, Phil, Phil Papers is a website where people, professional philosophers put their, their philosophy papers um, or yeah, there's, there's Phil Papers, Phil People. If you just Google my name and Phil Papers, my my profile will come up. I've also got a website that also should come up on on Google where I post all all of my papers, including some some works in progress and abstracts and things like that. Um, I guess those are the the main two ways. I don't maintain a hugely public presence, but I do. You know, there's those two websites uh, where you can you can follow my work if you're interested. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on today. I'll leave a link down below where people can follow Brian, connect with him and his work and whatnot. Uh, and thank you everyone for tuning in. If you're new here, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, um, all that fun stuff. Really appreciate your support. And if you value what we do, uh, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash should hear apologetics. But Brian, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a great time. Thank you. Thank you everyone. And God bless. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>